Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. It's 1997, and I'm going into the fifth grade. It is a hot and a humid July morning in Wisconsin. My friends and I are playing a cutthroat game of kickball, and then it has to end because we're called inside. But I'm being forced to sit against my will and sit still and sing. It's VBS Vacation Bible School at St. Matthew's in Oconomowoc, my home congregation. In between the songs, the teacher, the music teacher, who is my mother, tells me that if I don't stop and sit still and sing, I'm going to have to talk to the pastor, who is my father. And so I promise that I will sit still and I will sing because I know the next song up is my favorite song to sing. It's called Father Abraham Had Many Sons. And if you know the refrain, I want want to invite you uh, to join with me in singing the refrain right now. It goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for joining in with me on that. It's a great song. It's fun to sing. But is it true? Father Abraham had many sons and many daughters. I'm one of them. And so are you. You believe that? Is that true? Well, that's the first question that I would like us to consider this morning. Are you a son or a daughter of Abraham. And to understand that, we we first got to know what that means to be a son or a daughter of Abraham. And to understand that, what we're going to have to do is take a look at another story of a son who would not sit still. It's the story of the call of Abraham. At this time, he's called Abram. A couple chapters later, God's going to rename him Abraham. So I might just call him the name that God gave him. It's 2167 BC, and I imagine it's a hot and arid morning in the ancient city of Haran. God comes to Abraham, and this is what he says to him. He says, go, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. God calls Abraham, and he tells him to leave, tells him to leave his neighborhood, his people, and his immediate family and go to a place I will show you. Now, I got to tell you something about Abraham and his family. Abraham is not the son of a preacher. In fact, maybe kind of the opposite. In Joshua chapter 24, we learn more about Abraham's family and Terah, the father of Abraham, worshiped other gods. In other words, before God came to Abraham and called Abraham, 
Abraham didn't believe in God. In other words, there was nothing in Abraham that made God call him. There was no righteousness in him, no goodness in him, no holiness about Abraham that made God come to Abraham and call Abraham. And what's more, if God were to come to me and if he were to maybe come to you and say, hey guys, I'm, I'm looking for someone with whom I can build a great nation, someone who can father a great nation, who would you ask or who would you recommend to be that? You might pick someone who believes in God or at least is nice. And on top of that, you, you might say, well, father of a great nation, or maybe someone young, someone who's married and someone who can have kids. But God didn't do that either. He came to Abraham, who was 75 years old, who the Bible in the New Testament describes as as good as dead, to somebody who is married to Sarai, who is barren, unable to have children. And it's to Abraham that God makes this promise. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. Here it is. This is the way that God works. In Genesis chapter 12, what God is showing us is that he works the same way that he did back in Genesis chapter 1. God uses his word to call into being things that were not, even faith, especially faith and people who believe in his faith. God calls into being things that seem not to be and makes them things that are. He makes the dead alive. That's what God does. God wasn't going about searching throughout the world, looking for someone who naturally was righteous, looking for someone who had some sort of inherent goodness about him. And he just happened to stumble upon Abraham and say, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. You're going to be blessed. You'll bless people. Everyone will be blessed through you. No, there was nothing in Abraham. So what you see is an unfiltered picture of how God works with mercy, with grace, unending, unconditional grace and calls people to be what they were not. And he does it with what else? Well, his word, that which he always uses, the word of promise was spoken to Abraham and Abraham believed and that, that is what made him righteous. There it is. You see how God works. And you see it. You see what makes you a daughter or a son of Abraham. It's believing. It's believing in the promises of God, the promises that God made to Abraham, the promises that he would send through him, someone, the promised one, the one who would be the Messiah to save all people. And through that one, all 
would be blessed. There's nothing in you, there's nothing in me that makes us holy, that makes us good in and of ourselves, but this is the way that God works. He speaks his promise. He, through the gift of his word, the gift of his spirit, gives righteousness, gives faith to believe, gives holiness to people who are anything but. And through them, through the promise, which comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all offspring, not only to those who are of the law, not only to those who are born naturally, but to all those who are of the same faith as Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. This is the essence of faith. This is the essence, the foundation of your faith. It's not faith in and of itself that props up faith. It is Christ. Christ taken down from the cross, dead, risen from the tomb alive, and seated in heaven for you. That, that is what makes you a daughter or a son of Abraham. Yes, yes, that is who you are. Father Abraham had many sons and many daughters too. I am one of them and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Amen. But now can I ask you the real question that I wanted to get to? Are you living like a daughter or like a son of Abraham? Are you living like your faith father? Or does your faith life more mirror the idolatrous, no God trust in family from which God has called you out of? I think you'll agree. In our, in our lesson for today, we have what is perhaps one of the most remarkable verses in all of scripture. God calls the husband of a barren wife, the son of an idolatrous dad to follow him. And Abraham, he obeys. Verse four says this, so Abraham went as the Lord told him. So what we see in Abraham is the example of great faith, but we don't just see that. We also see a demonstration of faith, the fruit of faith. We see faith in action. We see what faith looks like. We see what, well, stewardship looks like. Why can I say that? Well, you know, over the past month, we've been talking about stewardship and, and we define stewardship this way. We said that Stewardship is not just a subcategory of the Christian life, but stewardship is the Christian life. It is the management of the totality of the time, the talents, the treasures, and the capital T truth that God has given to you. And that's an important, often forgotten one. God has given you truth, promises, that you are to manage. How do you manage God's truths? Well, you believe them. 
You believe what God's word, what his promise said to you. So here, here's stewardship in summary. Stewardship is simply taking God at his word, believing his promises, and acting accordingly. That's what you see in the life of Abraham. Abraham heard the spoken word of God to him. Go, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Go, I'm gonna give you this land. And so Abraham went to a land that he did not own. He went believing he would be a great nation, being married to a wife who was barren. And it happened, he did it because of his righteousness, but because of a God who made the promise and made it happen. He took God at his word. He believed him. And he acted accordingly. So the question, do you? Do you live like a daughter or a son of Abraham? Do you live like your faith father in your faithful stewardship? You being all in on what God's word has to say, taking him at his word and acting accordingly. You in for that? Whenever that question's asked and whenever Christians talk about this, there's three messages. There's three messages that are typically heard, whether it's from the church or from the pastor or from the voices in your own head. I'm gonna cover those three just briefly. The first message that's typically heard is the message of you have to. Are you living like your faith father? Are you living as a faithful steward of all that God has given you, taking him at your word? The message is you have to, whether you feel like it or not, whether you think you can or you can't, you have to. And here's why. God tells you. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I do not want you giving an ounce of affection to anyone or anything else because I want it all. Your God's son, Jesus, in the New Testament puts it this way. He said, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Just, just let the severity of that sit. God isn't saying, hate your wife. He's not saying, hate your life. What he's saying is, don't love these things more than me. He is saying that you can't be just part of the way in. It's all in or nothing with me. I don't want just a slice of your life and then you do whatever you want with the rest of it. I want it all. That's the message that God has The Holy Spirit speaks about why this is. It says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, 1 Corinthians 6. See, the language of God is unmistakably clear. You cannot live casually. You cannot live comfortably. You cannot live just conveniently as a child of God and think, you know what? I'm just going to give whatever, whatever else is left in here at the end of the week, stuck that in my envelope. You cannot just be, well, whenever it fits into my 
calendar, I'm going to be around God and his word. He says, if that's the kind of following you want to do of me, you are not going to hear at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant. What you're going to hear is, I do not know you. That's what our God says. In the final book of his Bible, the angel, his messenger with the eternal gospel says this, fear God and give him glory. Let me break that down. What that means is anything you do, any offering that you give can do one of two things. It can enhance the glory of your God or it can rob from him the glory that's due him. You cannot think about money differently than the way God thinks about it. You cannot feel differently about money than the way God feels about it. You cannot do differently with money differently than what God tells you to do with it. And if you think, feel, or do differently, at the very best, that's an act of spiritual immaturity. And at the very worst, it's a slap in the face of the God who made you and an all-out open act of rebellion against the creator. That's the rules. Our mothers growing up, they taught us or they should have taught us that when you go to other people's houses, you don't get to pick and choose if you follow the rules. They say, take the shoes off, you got to take your shoes off. You can't just take one of them off. You got to take both of them off. Those are the house rules. These are God's house rules. It's a message that he calls the message of the law. And it's a message that some of us need to hear. Ah, it's a message that all of us need to hear. The close cousin of that message is the second one. It's the message we we'll call it the message of you ought to. Now, while the first message is one that we need to hear, this one has no place. This one has no place in the church. It has no place in Christianity, except, sadly, it's all too present. It's the message that goes and sounds something like this. It says, the Lord has given you everything. Therefore, you ought to do your duty and give to him. It says, you ought to know how much God gave you, and you ought to give accordingly. It's the message that says, you know that Jesus loved you, and you know that he said to give. Therefore, you ought to give till it hurts. It's a message that says you ought to step up to the occasion. There's a building campaign. There's a budget deficit. There's a stewardship emphasis. Therefore, you ought to step up. It's a message that says, this is what these people gave. You all ought to be able to match what they gave. It's a message of ought to. And it's really the message of man-made religion because what it does is it confuses the law with the gospel. 
It's a message that has no place in Christianity and has no place in church because it does one thing. It looks one of two ways, but it does one thing. Either people hear what they ought to do and they're proud of how they've stepped up to the occasion, how they've done their Christian duty and how they've matched what other people have given. And they take their eyes off the one who has given them everything not the least of is the breath of life and the righteousness that is from outside of them. Or at the very same time, that is being heard. You have people who examine their lives and honestly look and know what they ought to do and realize that they don't do it. And so their heads fill with shame and guilt and their bodies turn over in weakness and fear. And either way, whether you're this person or that person, the result is the same. Your eyes are on yourself and not on the empty cross and the empty tomb. Because let me be clear, the primary message, the primary message of the Christian faith, of what God's word has to say is not, it is not a message of this, do you ought to but it's a message of what has been done for you. It is not a message of you ought to do this, but it is a message of you and I stand in awe. We stand in awe at what God has done for you. And this is the third message. This is the message that we're going to call the message of the promise. It is the message that moved and motivated Abraham to do what he did and to live the way that he did. In our lesson for today, we read it. God comes to him and he makes a sevenfold promise to him. He says to him, God said to Abraham, I will give you a special land. And the promises that God speaks to Abraham, I'm telling you, it's a message that he speaks to us as well. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna give you a special land, but God promises you an eternal place. In John chapter 14, he tells you, in my father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would not have told you I'm going there because just as there was an eternal, excuse me, a special place for Abraham, there is an eternal place for you. He tells Abraham, he'd be the father of a great nation. He tells you, you are a part of a holy nation. In 1 Peter, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. You, so that you may declare the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God promises Abraham. He said, if, if, if that were not enough, he said, I'm going to make your, I'm going to give you good gifts. I'm going to just richly bless you. And if heaven weren't enough, God says to you, ask me and I'll give to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more your father in heaven who has given you all things. God promised Abraham. He said he'd make his name great. God gives you a greater name. He calls all those who believe, this is John chapter one, the right to become children of God. Children not even born of natural descent, but children born of God. 
God tells Abraham, you are going to be a blessing to others. You have that capability to bless others. God tells you the same. He says, you can forgive people their sins. He tells you, he tells you that you can be many Christ. Matthew 25, he says, truly, whatever you did for the least one of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. That's a promise. God promised Abraham. He said, if people's attitudes towards them were, were of blessing, he would bless those people. If they were of curses towards Abraham, he would curse those people. And in Matthew chapter 10, he tells you the same thing. He says, you can go to people's homes who welcome you, who accept you, and you can leave the peace of God there. But he says, if anybody, if anybody rejects you, he said, it'd be worse for them. It will be worse for them than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah. God promises that he will bless those who bless you. He will curse those who curse you. And why do all of these blessings matter? Because of the last promise. The last promise that God gave to Abraham. He said, in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that promise was not only for you. It's a promise that includes you. Because in that promise, the promise that God set in motion by speaking to Abraham, it's really one that he spoke all the way back in the Garden of Eden to Eve, that through her offspring, he would bring about one, one who would be the savior of the world. And God doubled down on that promise yet again with Abraham. And yet again, throughout history, he made that promise that there would be one, not just for Israel, not just for Eve or Abraham, but there would be one who would be for all people whose name is Jesus, the one who would deliver, be delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. That is the promise that he made to you and that is the promise that holds all other promises together. I don't know if you know this, but people make a big deal about the fact that God gave Abraham this sevenfold promise and the fact that he doubled down on it a couple times throughout Abraham's life to remember that so that Abraham wouldn't forget that. God gives you seven times seven promises. And here's the joy here. Here is the beauty. Second Corinthians tells us, no matter how many promises God has made you, they are all yes in Christ. That's why all of this matters. It's because in Christ, what God has given you is yours. It's not only the protection from the fires of hell. It's not only forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. It is blessings on this earth. Ask me and I will give it to you. It is the assurance that I will be with you always. It is the promise that in all these things, God is working for the good of those who love him, that neither height nor depths, neither angels or demons or any power, nothing, it can, nothing can separate you from him. This message, well, it's the message that we call the message of you want to. And we're calling that because that is the effect. That is the effect that it had on Abraham. When you stop back and you just look at the immensity of all that God has given you and the intimacy that he has given it to you through your baptism, poured all of these blessings into you, through communion, puts these very blessings in you, 
You just want to. You want to give your best to the God who has given you his best. I might say to me, Matt, no, no. That sounds a lot like you ought to or you have to. <laughs> just, just listen to this message of the gospel. <laughs> right now, my wife and I, we've been working to teach our son to say thank you to say thank you when his mom and dad do things for him or his grandparents or his friends give him gifts. Now, because I'm teaching Julian to say thank you, none of you would come to me and say, oh, you're a a real legalistic parent, aren't you? No, because I'm not telling my son, son, you have to or you ought to. (laughs) No, it's the message. The message is this is natural. This is what someone wants to do who gets a gift. They want to say thank you. A farmer doesn't have to tell a banana tree that you ought to bear bananas or you have to give banana fruit. No, it's what a good, healthy tree will naturally do. This, the gospel, it's naturally what it moves you to do to want to give to want to give to your God. You know that today is Commitment Sunday. It's week one, it's week one of 10 weeks where we are challenging the people of this faith family to give in an enhanced way, to give 10% for 10 weeks, to raise a percent if they have already been at 10% or maybe they, they can't be at 10% right now. And no doubt, no, no doubt, there's some people who might think, you know what, this pastor, this church is awfully legalistic for even suggesting a percent. But this isn't about the amount. What we've talked about is that this is the natural movement when someone knows the grace of their God. It's not about the amount that you give. It's really not, not even the percent. It's about the attitude, the attitude that you have about what God has lent you and you're borrowing from him. It's not about the financial transaction. It is about a transaction that took place 2,000 years ago where God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. It's about a relationship, a relationship not with the gift, a relationship not even with your church, (laughs) but a relationship with your God, a relationship with your Savior. This is the message, this is the impact that the gospel has on our finances. Second Corinthians tells us, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. It's the idea that the king of heaven who had everything came to people who had nothing, and yet people who hoarded everything they could get their hands on and came and he offered them full and free forgiveness. It radicalizes your life. Every aspect of it. Your time, your talents, 
and your treasures. That's what it did for Abraham. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. You know what the great tree at Morah was? It was that holy or a unholy place. It was undoubtedly a pagan ritualistic site. And the Canaanites around him, they weren't believers. So as Abraham stood in that place, here's what happened. The Lord appeared to Abraham and he said to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. You want to know what Abraham did? He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to them. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. Abraham's standing there. He's standing in the midst of people who do not think the way he does about his God, who don't know about all that God has given him. He's standing there in the presence of pagan holy places. So what does he do? He builds an altar to the Lord. He builds an altar to the Lord for himself to remember the promises that God spoke to him and to proclaim to people watching the goodness of his God. Makes us think about our sacrifices and our offerings. Why why do we do it? Why do we take time during worship to pass around a, a plate that people put offerings in. You think about how you, you would ask, answer that question if you were asked personally. There's only one right answer. It's not because the plate's being passed around. It's not so this mission church can get off mission subsidy. <laughs> it's not because that one day we hope to not be worshiping in a theater, but maybe in a church building It's not because there's a stewardship emphasis. There's one reason. It's a spiritual act of worship. God doesn't need our offerings. (laughs) He doesn't need them in the least. But what our offerings are, are worship to our God. They're an offering to him to show them that in some small way, this is a token that I'm all in, that I am taking you at your word, that I am yours because you are mine. That's why we do it. Look, there's no doubt about it. We are standing in the midst of maybe a society that doesn't feel the same way we do about our God or know what we do about our God. And everywhere you look, there it is. There are, well, they're the gods of materialism, the gods of consumerism, the gods of pride that say what you get is yours because you did it. You go you, you do you. So what should we do? Despair? that this is the place we live in? Now, how about this? We start building altars. We start erecting altars in the midst of all of this to remember for ourselves the promises that God has spoken to you, to remember what he has given you and to proclaim it to anybody who will watch because this is our spiritual act of worship. 
Look, I don't get why Abraham did what he did, why he stood in land that he did not own and he built an altar there, except that he realized that he was standing in the promised land and he was standing more so on the promises of God. And so he is convinced of that word. Look, I don't get why people who undoubtedly have bills to pay, who have kids through, put through college, give offerings to their God. I don't get why people who have plenty to do, who work full-time jobs, who do so much for their families, also give time to their God and to their church. I don't understand it sometimes when people who seemingly don't have the uh, capacity or the skills to do something or so they thought start doing it for their God and all of a sudden they bloom and blossom and grow in a specific capacity. I do not understand how that works and I can't explain it except this. I am convinced. I am convinced, (laughs) like my faith father Abraham, that God is calling us to do greater things than we can see. He's calling us to go to places we don't yet know. He's calling us to befriend people we have not yet met for the kingdom of God. All because he's calling us to stand on promises, promises that he made, that he spoke, that may not yet be fully realized. Father Abraham had many sons, many daughters too. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Amen.